are the Communicating About Climate Roundtable. And um, I think we've got until 2.45, is that right? Um, you know, and, and my goal is just to give everyone an opportunity to just have a discussion about this. I mean, we've all been, we've all been here listening to a lot of really interesting discussions for the past two days, and, and hopefully we can have a more personal discussion in this session here. Um, I'm going to ask these guys one or two questions to start, and then I'm really just going to turn it over and, and hopefully have a lot of Q&A. Um, so let me introduce our panelists, um, some folks who I've known for a really long time uh, and, and someone who I just met today. Starting out with Doyle. Um, Doyle is the weather editor and reporter at USA Today. Um, I have been reading Doyle's stuff for longer than I care to admit. Um, I think we met when I was first at the Weather Channel. I think. Yeah. I guess, so you guys will turn the mics on, right? Okay. Um, so as many of you probably know, Doyle has been covering weather, but also climate and climate change for USA Today. So he's going to tell us a little bit about what it's like to, uh, to be reporting on the issue. Next we have another old pal, Mark Svoboda. Um, Mark is the monitoring program area leader at the National Drought Mitigation Center here at the University of Nebraska. And Mark is also um, an amazing claim to fame, uh, the co-founder of the U.S. Drought Monitor, which has always been just, it's such an important resource. Um, Mark's responsibilities include overseeing the National Drought Mitigation Center's operational national drought monitoring activities um, and providing expertise on climate and water management issues. And I have to say, when I hear Mark talk about drought, I just learn so much. He just has a way of, of really imparting a lot of intuition um, into his explanations. And then finally, uh, someone who I just met today, this is Greg Garfin uh, on the right-hand side. Uh, Greg is the Deputy Director for Science Translation and Outreach at the Institute of the Environment of the University of Arizona. So Greg works, and this came up during the talk this morning, Greg actually works to bridge the Science Society interface, and he works using data-based dialogues um, between scientists and decision makers. And Greg is also um, a lead editor and an author of the assessment of climate change in the U.S. Southwest, because I just showed a bunch of, of graphics from the National Climate Assessment, which I think is a terrific report. Um, like I said, you can get it online. Greg is actually the author of, um, of a co-author on one of the chapters. So I want to just tee up the discussion by allowing each of our panelists to kind of give us a little bit of a look into their lives and, and what they deal with and, and sort of some of the things that, that they've been addressing in their work. So to start with Doyle, is your mic on? Uh, checking, is it on? Yep. Can you yep. hear me? Yeah, yep. if you can it's just on. run the PowerPoint back there, you can just start it. Yes, and, while I'm, uh, and we have like multimedia technology here, so we are going to be launching PowerPoints there with our is. different yeah. speakers. Um, so. so Doyle, just to start, Okay, you cover everything from weather to climate variability. You talk about El Nino in your work, and you also talk about climate change. What's your strategy when you think about your reporting on educating your audience, which is a broad national audience, international in some cases, and what would you say is the appetite of your audience for climate and climate information? And you know, just give us some examples of, of stuff that you've been working on and, and just what you've learned. Well, thanks, thanks very much. I want to thank everybody here at the, the Water for Food Conference for inviting me. I've had a, learned a lot and had a good time, and I'm glad to be on the panel. Uh, just going to backtrack a little bit, just saying that uh, USA Today is one of the nation's three top uh, um, circulation newspapers, along with the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Um, it basically um, originated, it revolutionized the weather map back in 1982 when it first uh, when it first came out. Before then, most uh, weather graphics had been very gray, very flat, and the USA, uh, USA Today, back when it started, it was considered uh, one of the hallmarks and one of the signatures of USA Today, which which is still with us today. The, uh, the print version of, New of USA Today is still printed uh, Monday through Friday. Um, and having said that, though, uh, approximately 80% of our, the people who uh, read USA Today now either read it online or on mobile products. So the uh, newspaper itself is uh, in some ways almost like a, a legacy product, uh, and, and for better or for worse, uh, 
the, uh, the print side is nowhere near as uh, popular as it once was. And we're, we're confronting that and trying to figure out what uh, a business model to make, still make money off of uh, the uh, mobile products. I've been with USA Today since 2004. Uh, hired as the uh, the weather editor, and uh, my f uh, baptism under fire was Hurricane Katrina, which only uh, came up about uh, a few months after I started. So uh, what you're looking at right now on the screen are just some uh, examples of some of the climate change articles we've done recently and over the past year. Uh, we have a small team of reporters uh, that are dedicated to environment and science issues. Uh, and that includes climate change. Uh, our new editor, David Calloway, who started uh, less than a year ago, has a real interest in climate change. And uh, this year we have launched a, a new series called Weathering the Change, a multi-part series, uh, one, one article a month going to different parts of the country and uh, looking at the impacts of climate change right now. Not, not necessarily what's going to happen in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 100. It's, it's, we're trying to get people's focused on what people are confronting right now today with the changing climate, whether it's floods in the Northeast, ocean, ocean acidification in the, the Pacific Northwest, uh, water issues in the Southwest, sea level rise in uh, New Orleans. All of these things are issues that we're going to be tackling. And um, uh, having said that, my beat is primarily weather. I mean, most of the time, most of the, the stories I write for USA Today are about the weather. And uh, the US, USA's weather is violent and scary and varied enough that that keeps me, that's the full-time job almost to itself with uh, tornado outbreaks, hurricanes, floods, droughts, uh, all sorts of crazy weather extremes. So. But whenever I can, whenever I get the chance, and whatever, whenever it's appropriate, I will uh, incorporate climate change, accurate, science-based climate change into the weather reporting. Because uh, I, th I think once, when, when there is a big weather event, readers now really want to know the latest uh, accurate science on whether or not you could tie in a specific weather event to climate change. So uh, that's definitely uh, something that we, we grapple with and uh, our, our small team of reporters uh, is going to be producing this series all year and hopefully you'll, you've seen it or will see it in the months ahead. Again, these are some graphics that uh, we've put out along with the, uh, the series this year. Yeah, I mean, I saw Dan Bergano actually on the Weather Channel talking about the ocean acidification yeah. report that you guys did. Dan Bergano is the USA Today science reporter and he, along with uh, Wendy Koch, who's kind of the environment and energy reporter, myself kind of make up the uh, the climate change the uh, or doing the, the entire climate change series here so, and are you getting any negative feedback I mean are you getting beat up at all for the coverage or are you finding people say look we want we want more of it we want less of it oh I, I think people want more of it uh, fortunately we we don't uh, our editorial policy is it does not originate from our uh, the commenters on the bottom of our story most of them seem to be a little bit to the right of Genghis Khan as far as uh, as far as their feelings about uh, libertarian, they, they, they basically, a lot of them would prefer that I think the U.S. government just goes away. But uh, so we, we, we don't follow them. We follow the science. We follow what, uh, what the latest research is showing. And uh, I think there is an appetite, definitely is an appetite for it out there. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to switch to Mark for a second. And, you know, Doyle, jump in because I know you've been covering the drought as well. Mm -hmm, um, definitely. So Mark, Obviously, your audience is going to be a little bit different than Doyle's in the sense that you're working with stakeholders, you're working with decision makers in a lot of cases. So what do you feel like the key questions are that need to be answered about the 2012 drought? Um, and, and what do you say when you talk about climate change? Yeah, can I... Maybe I should set the context a little bit and yes, tee and, up the and slides? Yes, and as you do that, I will say yes. Can we tee up... Do, um, Mark slides. Let me give you the short answer though, Heidi, um, that started from day one. And, and so these slides will just show a few of the things I've learned um, along the way since starting with the, uh, the National Drought Mitigation Center since it was founded in 1995. So we've been at it about 18 years. Um, the, the first thing they want to know is how bad is it and where is it, obviously. Um, and a lot of times not for the reasons you think. It's they know the situation in their backyard. 
they're more interested in, you know, with this global market and, and our global connections these days, where else is drought occurring and how bad is it? So I think that's, that's one of the things they're looking for. How bad is it and where is it, right? Then they want to know, how does this compare historically? So they want an analog, if you will. They want to know, is this like the 30s drought? Is it like the 50s drought? So we're, we're always looking to be able to explain uh, that. And then finally, the, the, the holy grail is, when will it end? So the forecast component, which we don't handle at our center, but we refer uh, to our collaborators on the U.S. Drought Monitor Product at the Climate Prediction Center um, and other colleagues at, at the International Research Institute. Okay, so um, going through these slides just quickly, I just wanted to sort of uh, plant some seeds that uh, maybe we can have in the general open discussion, so I don't have a lot of time to go into these in great depth. But obviously along the way, what I've learned in working with folks like Doyle and others is, is, is it takes time to build sort of that relationship. And the trust factor goes both ways. And I can honestly say, and I, I on average do about um, 200 or so <coughs> interviews in all print mediums a year. And years like last year, it was more like 400. Probably. Um, Some of them were even others than myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And that's just Doyle. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so. um, is, is that, you know, there is that, that building of that relationship that does take place over time, and I think that's pretty critical. Um, secondly, and, and, and speaking of time, I view it as an essential part of my job to take time to work with the media. Um, I don't view them as, I don't view this as an adversarial process <laughs> at all. Um, I think it's a way to get our message out and educate folks about the science as we know it. And uh, many people are going to form their opinions no matter what you say, so let's at least give them the facts to make somewhat of an informed decision, right? Um, so it's not a waste of my time. And it's very much part of my job description that the, that the university allows me to do that. And then also to be uh, accessible and flexible, which goes back to the time thing. but. But also, you know, with this day and age in medium, it means if BBC Live or Five Live wants to do a Skype, that means maybe I'm doing that from home at 10 o'clock at night so they can air it at 5 a.m. the next day. Um, using, we need to do a better job, I think, with the next generation. Um, my kids keep me somewhat honest with their smartphones on the latest social media type stuff. Um, so my somewhat almost ancient brain, you know, uh, is trying to keep up, keep up with that. So. Um, let's go to the last slide I have. Uncertainty does not equal not knowing. I think that's a critical one too, and I think even if you listen to Heidi's talk closely, um, you know, one of the questions that came to my mind, I was going to ask her, maybe I'll throw this back at the moderator, she's fair game standing up here. We don't have a chair for you, so I guess you've got to stand. Um, Think it on my feet. <laughs> um, you know, given, given the idea of, of more extreme events and the, and, the, and the variability that we're dealing with now, communicating that to the public, why are we throwing out the extreme outliers on the models? If we're trying to capture some of these extreme events, shouldn't they be in play? Amen to that. Okay, yeah. right? So that, that'd, be, that'd be one thing, just sort of a tossing, that, that, tossing that out there. Because it's, it is difficult to explain um, to people at all levels the idea of, of risk and probabilities and uncertainty. And so one of our jobs in translating science uh, into information is to hopefully bridge that gap and talk to them in terms that they can understand. So that's, I think, important to take the time to, to do that. Um, transparency, um, you know, full disclosure, the science, keep it factual, um, and let them make an informed decision based on what I've been able to tell them. So I do for the most part, try to stay away from uh, opinions when, if you're, if you're talking to me on the phone um, or by email, because I think uh, if we can inform the public, uh, our job is to help them make an informed decision. Because if we don't inform them, they're gonna make the decision anyway without that information. So I see that as, as uh, a critical part of what I do. All right, that's all I've got for the precursor stuff. Thank you. Jerry. So are we passing to Greg for his first slides or? Thank you for reminding me okay. in advance. Right. Yes. So can we tee up Greg's slides now? Um, and you know, Greg, I thought that it would be really helpful for you to just describe, first of all, some of the challenges that you face in being this bridge between the scientists and the decision makers. And and very importantly, can you share with us some success stories where you know you've been able to take adaptation strategies through to the end and where this scientific data really did 
become incredibly useful and bear out on real world decisions. Okay. Thanks, Heidi, and thanks to the organizers of the conference. So, um, in terms of the biggest challenges in bridging science with decision making, I'll, I'll pick up on a thread that Mark started, and that's uh, establishing trust, finding common ground, and determining who's the champion, the early adopter of new practices, and the leader. And I'd just say, probably my take home point on all of this is that the greatest tools that we have are not necessarily the knowledge that we have, but conversation and discussion with decision makers, whether they are fire managers or farmers, ranchers, urban planners, and so on. Building trust is um, a bit, it's a relationship building process. It's like um, a marriage. And I've worked with fire managers, water managers, land managers, ecosystem managers, urban planners, and farmers. So I guess that makes me a bit of a polygamist. Um, you have to let people know first that um, you're looking for a relationship. So um, rather than stand out on the street corner, we generally put that information out on websites. We engage in phone calls or attend meetings, trade meetings. And um, even though some of the speakers yesterday morning kind of disparaged it, in cases where we do have some interesting insight that the general public doesn't, uh, you know, there's a demand side and a supply side to information. So a lot of times on the supply side, we can put something out there, some interesting bit of information. Maybe, it was, maybe it's about El Nino Southern Oscillation. Maybe it's about temperature trends or, and so on. Um, and that can be a kind of a calling card to let people know that you're interested in having a relationship. The next thing is finding common ground. And you have to establish um, shared interests and needs. And in the panel before lunch, Michael Kelly mentioned you know, one, of the, one of the really great shared needs of, um, of his ranching operation. That is um, wanting to leave the land in better condition for the next generation. It's hard to imagine a, um, a, a stakeholder, a land manager, a resource manager of any kind that would want to leave anything in worse condition than they found it. So a lot of the finding common ground is, has to do with face-to-face -face interactions, working with small groups. And basically, as again with relationship building, at least in the, the culture that I grew up in, um, you go out on dates. You get to know each other. So this would involve you know, repeated meetings with uh, different stakeholders. And you have to let people know that you care. Uh, one of our colleagues, Renee McPherson, at the University of Oklahoma, does a fair amount of work with uh, Native American tribes. And she mentioned that uh, at a recent conference that uh, demonstrating what you know is less important than demonstrating that you care. Frankly, the information is generally out there in the scientific community. And if you don't have it, within two or three phone calls, you'll be able to find it. And I'm sure you'd be able to find uh, somebody to cooperate on that. And then another uh, part of, of building a relationship is iteration. And as, as with a marriage, you're going to do things over and over again day in, day out, year in, and year out. So in some of my work with uh, the National Predictive Services at the National Interagency Fire Center, uh, trying to develop seasonal fire forecasts before the fire season starts, trying to project out just several months into the future how things might, might be, uh, that's something that's now operational. Before 2003, there was no national fire outlook. And in working with National Predictive Services to develop that process, it took several years just to identify the early adopters and to identify that Predictive Services was one of those early adopters. It took an, another two to five years to develop trust between uh, fire folks and climate forecasters. They had very different vocabularies and 
uh, very different methods that they worked with. It also took about four to five years for people within the fire community to get good at doing these seasonal outlooks and for them to start to effectively promote the value. And at this point, they have tremendous capacity and they have a, a process that seasonally is used um, as much as daily fire spot forecasts are used. Um, and another key to this is that it was a partnership. Each partner brought together uh, different kinds of resources, human resources, financial resources, and we all had uh, a stake in the outcome. Another example, uh, just briefly, about climate change adaptation, which is where I spend a lot of my time working uh, recently, is um, a different kind of marriage. And in this case, um, we have an officiator, a justice of the peace, as it were, and that's the uh, Nature Conservancy. So if you think about the Nature Conservancy as an organization that have, has small uh, land holdings, and they're facing a problem, climate change effects on watershed scale landscapes and biodiversity that they can't fix alone in their uh, small land holdings. So it the process inherently requires uh, partnerships with uh, neighboring landowners, whether they're private landowners, uh, across multiple jurisdictions, private, state, federal, and so on. So the common ground element in this process was, is um, understanding the system. So, oops, there we go. So this wiring diagram is critical. Um, basically getting everybody on board to understand in this particular case how climate affects um, the fire uh, on the ground that they're managing in the, in the particular landscape here. And what we started out with, with a bunch of people in the room, was a blank whiteboard. And we eventually got to the fancy diagram that I showed in, in the uh, previous uh, picture. But basically, getting everybody on the same page in terms of the linkages in the system, what are the societal factors like grazing practices or urban expansion that might affect uh, fire outbreaks, uh, how does climate affect uh, fire in various ways, how much uncertainty is there in the uh, f future climate projections, and identifying within those linkages where managers could actually take an action. And what we find from this kind of mutual learning process is that people can agree on how the system works, and once they do that, rather than having a depressing conversation about you know, the gloom and doom of future climate change, they can think about the kinds of strategies and actions that they might take to influence the system now to have outcomes somewhere maybe 50 years down the line. So, um, as you may have just seen, there is apparently some feedback that hopefully isn't bothering you folks too much, but um, they just requested that you guys take off your mics and we're gonna use these mics. And so it's actually a natural point to, now that you've heard a little bit from each of our panelists and you've got a sense of, of where they fit in to this overall discussion, I'd absolutely welcome questions or any, if you will, just personal stories that, that you'd like to share. Um, and if you have a question for a specific panelist, then we'll bring them up here so that they can respond. So there are mics up in the front. Um, yeah, I welcome anyone who has a question to just, yeah, step, step to the mics. And do you need me to tell you which, which mic they're at? Do you need me to tell you which mic they're at or are they both hot? They're both hot, okay. So I will start on the right. And if you have, who, who would you like, if you have someone you'd like to ask the question to, just yeah, call them up. The first question is how do I turn the microphone on? It's on. It's on. Okay, um, this is just a generic. Uh, my name is Don Nelson, I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I've lived here 43 years. But as a child, I grew up on the sea. And I learned a lot of things growing up on the sea that I brought to the Great Plains. Here's my question. Almost every 
post-disaster calamity is the product of bad land use planning. And so while local elected officials are making these bad decisions because they want to generate ad valorem taxes to fuel government, what responsibility do each of your organizations have to inform the public that the officials they're electing are continuing to make bad land use decisions, which will eventually put people in continuous harm's way. So, well, when you do your reporting on, you mean, even, you know, Katrina, Sandy, drought, and you focus on personal communities, have you guys done, you know, have you done an adaptation series, or do you have an adaptation series? Yeah, we, we haven't specifically done that yet, but, I mean, the big problem is that Americans seem to love to live right near the water. And I don't know what the percentage is of US citizens who live within 50 miles of the ocean is, but you know what the fact, it's uh, big. It's big. Yeah, that, that was a, that's a good technical term, is that we're living in places along the coast that are uh, absolutely sh should not be inhabited or should not be uh, inhabited as the, to the level they are. We, love, we live near rivers, we live near oceans, we live near the lakes, and uh, you know, it's beautiful 99.9% .9 of the time, but that one-tenth of a percent of the time when you've got this monster hurricane or a nor'easter blasting in, uh, you know, that, that's when everything goes haywire. And uh, so I, as far as educating our readers, you know, we're, we're just trying to tell people you know, that, that climate change is real and that uh, you're going to have to learn how to cope and how to adapt with this new, you know, the new norm of uh, more strong, st stronger storms. So. Did you guys want to say anything? Before I would let Greg come up here, I would just say, I guess, Don, from the drought's perspective, that's the one hazard that doesn't confine itself to a floodplain or a storm surge area or the, you know, sort of this quick hitting episodic event like a tornado that comes down and affects a relatively small spatial footprint. Um, drought has the potential to cover uh, millions of square miles and affect millions of people and, and is very cross-sectoral. Uh, so drought is a little bit of a wild card in that. And I think that is an interesting, uh, speaking of your ancient brain uh, analogy, I'm not gonna be able to get rid of that in my head. But if you think about drought, you could posit with regards to climate change, the slow onset nature of it, it's not the, the flight. You don't have that instinct with drought. And so for decision makers and planners, you know, our, our job to inform them to make policy is to really sort of break them at this hydro, as Don Wilhite always says, the hydro illogical cycle, um, and get them to proactively plan for drought. Um, uh, in the future because we know it you know climate change is sort of this ramp up droughts are a normal part of the climate cycle and will be part of that climate cycle as well and so we need to be uh, prepared to deal with that and uh, this isn't you know specifically with uh, land use management well maybe it is but uh, I think it's, it's uh, incumbent upon us to raise the red flag when we see something coming, such as uh, you know, a highly active, potential for a highly active fire season or uh, um, developing drought. And uh, one of the ways that we can do that is, um, is through uh, op-ed pieces. Another, some of us serve on uh, drought task forces, state drought task forces, and we want to make sure that we're getting the word out to our governors about, um, the, uh, about making uh, emergency declarations. And I suppose another um, avenue that's open to academics, like myself, is to uh, hold a public forum on an emerging issue of importance. You know, again, to raise the issue, inform people about the kinds of information that we have, and, and to learn also about the points of view of people who are managing resources. Next question. Hello. My name is Francisco Munoz Arriola. I'm an assistant professor at the University of
University of Nebraska Lincoln. My question is to the panelists in the following sense. Uh, to start the building trust, we have certainly two components, the scientist and the stakeholder just to start with. What is the state of science or technology and what is the difference between what you can provide or communicate and what the stakeholder wants to know and uh, how you have deal with this uh, gap between the supply and demand of information along this uh, building trust uh, uh, stage. Thanks, Francisco. Um, well, you know, you, you basically start with a dialogue about needs and about abilities. So you want to, and folks talked about this uh, yesterday morning, about understanding the decision context in which um, a stakeholder works in. So what, what are their, their capabilities, what are their needs, first of all? What, what are their capabilities for incorporating new information or new data streams, and what constraints do they operate under? And similarly, for scientists, um, the, the question for scientists is, what, what can you provide? How quickly can you provide it? And what are the, the, um, the uncertainties uh, or, or the state of, what's the state of knowledge? And you know, having a really good dialogue on that, I think, gets you going on the right track in terms of matching supply with demand. In some cases, you might be able to wheel out something really quickly that maybe is a white paper or a synthesis of, of existing products or pointing people in the direction of existing data or products. Of course, if it's, if it's a problem that requires primary research, we know it's going to take years, most likely. And as long as you establish those expect expectations early on, you can get to the right place or you can engage in a really long-term relationship, again, where you can iterate and, and track through that um, change in, in knowledge over time. You know, Mark, I'm, I'm wondering if you can add to that as well, just in the sense that, okay, we had this epic drought in 2012. How in the several years that you've been doing the Drought Monitoring Center and, and everything that you've been able to pull together, how, could you, how do you match people's needs during these times of crisis with what you can actually provide for them and, and, and be of service, I guess? Yeah, that's a, I, I think that, to, a couple things, I guess. I was thinking about coming up here and answering that question before you asked it, so we're on the same page today, that's good. One of the first things we did when we developed the drought monitor back in the late 90s, um, we, we sort of identified at that time what we called the dirty dozen. So we had the authors of the map, but we knew, you know, you've seen the field of dreams. Uh, build it and they will come. But the truth is, really, if you build it, maybe a few will come. So what we decided to do is right away engage some experts around the country to help us do this. It started with 12. We're now over 350. Every state's represented, roughly, several states with a dozen or more. They have an ownership in the process. They have the ability to give us feedback and data. They are our sanity check. They are our ground truth. Um, you know, I, I say it sort of jokingly, but one of the indices I have is the, when my phone rings index is when you get it wrong. And, um, or, or the email. Uh, really lights up or Doyle calls and goes, what are you talking about? So uh, engaging those folks right up front, I think, has been a staple of how we, it's been our, it's been the way we do business. And at the Drought Center, we have several tools now, including a drought impact database. Uh, we're just about ready to launch a drought risk atlas. Um, we have a, a, a nice website on uh, risk on the farm and ranching. But with all those, right away, we just didn't build it and hope that people would use it. We went out and engaged stakeholders on the ground not in downtown Chicago or Houston or Dallas or New York. We went out in the rural areas and asked them, what do you need? And it's been, as Greg said, an iterative process. And Greg was one of those early 
dozen, dirty dozen type guys, and, and uh, uh, they have street cred in their backyards. And me making that map in my ivory tower doesn't, isn't going to fly if it doesn't match up sort of with Greg seeing there in Arizona. So that's kind of how I would, would answer that. My name is Kelly Witkowski. I work with the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation on Agriculture. And as part of my job, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to communicate, particularly with government representatives, about climate change. And my question for you is, you know, how much emphasis do you put on people really getting the terminology and the concepts right? Because it's so complex that, you know, people are always using global warming synonymously with climate change or saying that natural disasters are climate change. Um, and it's a you know, tough balance because you don't want to frustrate people with how complex it is, but at the same time you want them to really understand the topic. So I just wanted your opinion on that. And then secondly, um, I wanted to know if um, you have any tools to measure how effectively you're c communicating these climate change concepts and how you do that. Yeah, and Doyle, I think you'd be a great person to answer this. And I, you know, just for example, when I was at the Weather Channel, we did a lot of focus group testing. Um, it was the first time that anyone had done a regular television program around climate change. And the question was, you know, how do we talk about this to our audience? And one of the things that we learned was that global warming felt very political to our audience. And everyone needs to know their own audience. That's lesson number one, know your own audience. But what we learned was that global warming felt very political to our audience and that climate change seemed more scientific. And so if you watch old episodes, you'll see that we called it climate change. From a scientific perspective, it really is just, you know, global warming is the average temperature, and it's just the warming component, and climate change is all the other stuff that happens. So there are other social science research projects that are ongoing to, to try to get a sense of what, what gives people the intuition that we need them to have to, to, to be able to have a good scientific understanding of it. So there is other research out there as well. Yeah, that was a good question. I, I like to say we call it global warming in the summer and then climate change in the winter. So, because uh, that it does, it's, it's a way of working because people in the summer, uh, you know, that they, they are definitely, the, I don't know if the surveys have shown, but people in the summer definitely feel that global warming is more real than it is in the, win in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. So, this kind of cr these crazy weather variability uh, can really throw a monkey wrench into explaining cl climate change. Uh, and the problem with climate change, as far as uh, national weather reporting goes, is a lot of the effects of climate change are very subtle. They're very slow motion, very drawn out, like sea level rise. Nobody's going to really see that happening. Ocean acidification. Nobody, you know, anybody who understands, most, most of the population doesn't understand ocean acidification or probably care once they learn about it, yet that is one of the scariest of all of the, uh, the uh, aspects of, uh, of climate change. Some of the others that, uh, uh, such as uh, the changes in precipitation patterns, again, it's, it's very long term, like that slide we saw at the lunch talk is that the northeast is get, getting much more rainfall, but you know, it's, it's, it's over decades, and to try, try to explain that in, you know, like, was this rainstorm, this particular storm caused by climate change? Uh, uh, to try to attribute each and every weather event to climate change, I think, is, is, is not, doesn't help the cause, because then people get kind of overkill to, to keep uh, harping on climate change. And, and there's a lot, of que lot more questions about the connection between weather and climate than uh, weather and climate change than there are good answers. So, uh, uh, you know, we struggle with with those issues that you brought up there. So, um, I think there there are different levels of communication, um, or maybe levels not the right word, but. You know, there's, there's more um, what I call anonymous communication, talking to a big room full of people and uh, introducing the topic, or um, trying to do it in a one-minute elevator speech where you really can't get into the nuances of either the language or the details of the science. And then, you know, going back to my, my marriage analogy, there's the more intimate relationship. and 
in that case, oftentimes people want to get into what, what are the details because it affects, depending upon who you are, maybe billion dollar decisions. So for example, and, and this maybe touches a little bit more on Francisco's question too, um, water managers uh, around the country, um, some of them, the, in particular, a, um, an organization called the Water Utility Climate Alliance uh, put out the call two years ago, I think it was, at the World Climate Research Program Conference, um, saying that they lacked actionable science on climate change. And I can't tell them what actionable science is. That's the, they're the ones they're the, who know what the standard is. But what we can do is work with them to talk about the emerging science, to talk about the gaps in knowledge and how, how we either fill those gaps or maybe we'll never fill some of those gaps or, or by the time we fill them, we'll all be in our graves. So, so working out those nuances, I think, you know, is, you can do that in a longer term relationship, much, much more difficult to do on the spot um, in your elevator speech or something like that. If, if somebody's interested enough, they'll come back. I don't know who got to the mic first. Ladies first? Okay, ladies first. Hi, Barb Mays Baustet, National Weather Service and PhD candidate here at UNL. A uh, question for all of you on the panel and Heidi too. During lunch, Heidi showed the Yale Six Americas diagram with the range from uh, doubtful and dismissive folks to alarmed. Um, as communicators, how much time would you say you dedicate or spend to giving messages to the people who are really on that doubtful, dismissive side, uh, knowing that some of your middle ground folks are reading and watching, uh, compared to how much time you go directly to the middle ground, cautious and disengaged folks? Uh, how do you find that balance between where you spend your energy and communication? I will start and then come on up. You know, one other slide that I have that I didn't show was that part of Tony and Ed's polling work for the Six Americas was to ask the question, if you could ask a global warming, a global warming expert one question, what would it be? And from that, they kind of then saw that there were three Americas. There was the alarmed and the concerned, and they just wanted to know how do we fix it. They did not care about any more science. They did not need to know any more linkages between climate change and extreme weather. They just wanted to know what they could do in their community or at the state or higher, like what they could do to help be part of the solution. The folks in the middle are very much just folks who are still on the fence. They still think of climate change um, as just something that they don't have time to deal with, something that affects other people in faraway places on timescales that don't matter, and they need you to answer the question for them how is this going to affect me personally? How will it affect my children? How is it affecting where I live in my backyard? So different audiences are gonna have different questions. And the folks in that, that doubtful and dismissive category are still really distrustful of the science. They don't believe the data necessarily. They don't really trust climate scientists. And so with that group, you really need to kind of walk back and just say, okay, this is where the data comes from. This is why we believe that this data is trustworthy. This is what we do to these data. This is why we feel like this analysis is robust. So different audiences are gonna have different questions. That's, that's one way of approaching it. Yeah, as I said earlier, the, um, yeah, we, we went by a lot of our commenters. That, that a lot of the people who comment on, our, on USA Today stories are really, pretty seems to be hardcore skeptics. And there's the entire skeptic denial industry machine apparatus out there that, uh, you know, that they pounce on any, any story, any, any latest research, any finding, any, any weather event, and uh, they're ready to, uh, you know, they're in a constant attack mode to, uh, to stick on, on the media or the, the, the lamestream, they call it the lamestream media, sorry. <laughs> the mainstream media who, uh, uh, you know, they think are just the usual bunch of uh, ivory tower uh, radicals. And uh, so, so what, what, again, what, what we have to do is uh, just keep hitting, hitting hard on the, on the science and, the, and keep, keep addressing that it's, it's these are very respected organizations, National Academy of Sciences, NOAA, uh, triple, uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, these are all 
you know, pretty legitimate and uh, reasoned uh, organizations and that the information and the data they're putting out is valid and real and, trust and trustworthy and despite some occasional snafus with emails and, and the like that, uh, you know, that those folks are the, the trusted source. And I, I personally, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I don't have any problem with saying climate scientists are smarter than I am. I, I trust them. I trust the, the, the science and some people out there, they're just, they don't. They don't uh, believe it. They think that, uh, you know, they're only out there just to keep the grant money rolling in and that they'll just keep, uh, you know, shoveling out all these reports just to, uh, just to make sure that they, they, they keep getting their money. So, uh, you know, that, that there is that balance. But uh, now speaking of balance, our new editor, uh, we, I asked him point blank and I said, do we need a skeptical voice in every climate change story? Do we need to get a denial, uh, a, a denier scientist, uh, for balance, and he said, "No, we don't need to do that anymore. Uh, that that's a, f a false balance. That uh, that we don't really need to provide, you know, that that level of questioning with every single climate change story, which has seemed to be the rule for quite a few years. And uh, we're kind of happy that that's not the case anymore." So. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, my name is Dale McDermott. I've said that twice now this morning. Uh, I work at Lycor Biosciences, and we make uh, instruments uh, for uh, measuring atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration, uh, photosynthesis, CO2e flux from the soil, and things that are generally related to climate science research. And uh, I travel a lot. So anyway, what I'm going to do is tell a story that addresses this point directly. Uh, I travel a lot, and you sit next to a person on an airplane, and, and uh, Dozens of times over the years, people say, what do you do? And I say, well, I work for a uh, biotechnology company, and we make uh, instruments that are, in, uh, that are used in climate science or climate change research. And I say that so that the, you know, the listener will understand, some, I mean, engage them a little bit in uh, understanding what we do. If I talk about photosynthesis, you know, they won't know what that is. So up until very recently, 100% of the time, the next question was, 100% of the time, is climate change real? So I've been asked that question, I don't know how many times, dozens and dozens and dozens of times on different legs of trips over a period of 15 years. Uh, and uh, I found that uh, the best way to, to address this was not to start with something arcane, like what's the average temperature of the Earth? I mean, what's that mean? sake, uh, but with uh, long-term integrative processes. So I, I learned at, a, uh, at a, an Intercol conference in 1993 that the boreal forest tree line was moving northward. Uh, we see glacial recensions all over the world. We see loss of Arctic sea ice that is getting worse and worse and worse every single year. And uh, my experience was that people were able to uh, respond to these kinds of things in a much less uh, skeptical way than something like average temperature and all the things that people can raise with average temperature. So now we're seeing things like expansion of range in, uh, in uh, agricultural crops. We heard about that yesterday. Uh, we, we've heard about earlier onset of spring and, and later onset of, uh, of uh, freeze in the fall. And, and I think if, if we're engaging uh, an audience of, of people that aren't really that uh, attuned to the, the scientific lingo, before we get to the really detailed scientific issues like, well, tell me about the greenhouse effect and what those mechanisms are and the nature of shortwave and longwave radiation and so on and so forth, uh, we start with more uh, integrative processes that everybody can relate to. And um, that's even much more concrete, I think, than frequency of intense storms or rainfall events or those kinds of things. You can move on to those things, but if we can start with the long-term integrative effects first, it seemed to me that that always smoothed the conversation and then I could deal with uh, the skeptical questions afterwards. Mm-hmm, yeah. So. Thank you, thank you for that. It's interesting, using the airplane analogy, um, a colleague of mine who's a climate scientist actually recently said that uh, after years and years of flying and having similar heated debates on airplanes, he now tells people that he's a chiropractor. 
So, so, so I'm happy that you have not resorted to that. Um, did you guys have any other points that you'd like to make? Any other sort of closing remarks? Or any other questions or just come on up. We've got a couple of minutes left. Larry Dedica, Dryland Farmer, about a half an hour uh, west of Lincoln. El Nino and La Nina are almost becoming household words, not quite, but uh, and they have the effect on our weather. Uh, but supposedly there's also an effect with the North Atlantic warmer temperatures and the Pacific cooler temperatures that have affected droughts, cyclical droughts in the past. Uh, since we have, it's kind of like Antiques Roadshow, we've got three experts up here. Is that true or is that false? <laughs> you don't want to waste this opportunity, that's right. Well, obviously, Mark is, is a great person to answer this question. Well, I think it's great that you even raised that question. I mean, where did you hear that? Was it for me? <laughs> no, uh, it's exactly right, though. Um, one of the early radar signatures, see, we don't have satellites and uh, radar to uh, hook echoes for drought, right? You know, it comes on slowly. So one of the things you do look for is opposite signs in the Atlantic and Pacific, one being <coughs> cold ocean in the Pacific and a warm Atlantic, and North Atlantic in particular, is a very good heads up for potential drought. The key is can we tell you exactly where the drought will be, how severe it'll be when it starts? That's what you ask Heidi for. Um, for, for me, though, it, it, does, it gives me an opportunity to give some general awareness. Um, uh, the Climate Prediction Center, who creates what's called the Seasonal Drought Outlook, they look for those, what we call these oceanic teleconnections. Um, and, and the truth is, our models will only get better as we get more data and understand how they interact, not just those two oscillations, but the Indian Ocean Oscillation, the Arctic Oscillation, the Pacific Decadal and Atlantic Multi-Decadal Oscillations, because it's how they all interplay. Climate, uh, people think, you know, uh, climate really does drive weather. Um, it's that long-term setup of the atmospheric river, and, and as Heidi alluded to, sort of a, a more wavy uh, design or, or a camel, you know, if you, you, how that gets set up is by what's going on in the oceans, which are storing the energy and releasing the uh, moisture into the atmosphere and driving the patterns for our day-to-day -day weather. So um, that's something that we, our models, I think, will continue to get better, and we've seen some of that, and the resolution gets better, and the satellites uh, sensing this get better. Hopefully, we'll do a better job prediction uh, down the road, because a classic example of this, as I mentioned, in, in 2010 leading into 11, we had that setup. What happened, though, was the North Atlantic really made it much cooler in the southeast than the entire Gulf region. Texas went into the drought and still are in drought. Um, uh, so it, it had the look of a classic La Nina winter setup of a warmer, drier winter in the southeast. But the NEO affected that, and really that didn't happen in, say, Georgia and, and, and uh, it, what's that? The, the NEO being the North Atlantic Oscillation. So how it was, in, how it was impacting uh, the, the, the temperatures, the cold air coming down out of Canada, and how it was letting uh, the drying out of Texas occur at the same time, made a big difference on where that drought set up and you can just see where that line was. So I think moving forward, as we better understand those interrelationships on that, um, uh, we'll, we'll do a better job because what happened this year was we were neutral. So we haven't talked much about neutral. Their forecast, their seasonal skill goes way down if they have a neutral ocean, especially in winter, which is already their bread and butter for stronger forecast skill because summer is very hit and miss convective thunderstorms, tougher drought. You know, if you're in it, Persistence says you'll probably stay in it. Um, you can get three inches and your neighbor down the road five, five miles gets no, no precip at all. So we can't really rely on that. So I think that's where we need to go in the future with our, with our modeling. Yeah. You know, I suspect that Mark and I could geek out on this for a really long time, but you know, I'll just say that it's such an important question, you know, and, and it's an important question on a number of different levels. One is Marty Herling wrote a paper many, many years ago called the perfect ocean for drought. And, that, and the question was, you know, what, what kinds of patterns in terms of warming and cooling do we need to see in the ocean to really set up conditions that, that 
exacerbate a drought. So we're trying to understand the ocean's role in this. And it's important to just say that from a climatological standpoint, we think of the oceans as the elephant in the sense that the oceans have long memory because they can advect heat around. And so that's why they, they hold the key to forecasting. And then from the climate change standpoint, the question then is, okay, if we know that there's these differentials, if a cold North Atlantic and a warm Pacific push us towards a greater likelihood of drought, what happens when you then turn up the thermostat and you start warming everything up? And then you, you don't have these differences anymore because, I mean, that plays a huge role in, in the Sahel and, in, and in, in terms of rainfall in Africa. It's the difference between the temperatures in the Atlantic that, that really sets the conditions for rainfall. So the question then becomes, okay, what happens when you turn up the temperature for some of this stuff? So, like I said, we could probably talk about this for a long time. Yeah, I'm, I'm Keith Olson. I'm a farmer from Southwest Nebraska. And climate change is happening. We do know that. It happened for millions of years. On my farm in the 50, the oil well, test well was put in, about 3,000 feet deep, they found a layer of coal. In that coal, there's fossil, uh, the fossil of a seashell and a fern leaf. Something happened. But it was climate change or you know, before the uh, ice age, uh, when the ice age came through, it dumped a bunch of dirt on top of what was there before. So it is happening. There's no question in my mind that climate change is happening. It's happening for a long time. And our key is we've got to accept it. And is man contributing to it? Yes, probably. But my question, uh, point is maybe, uh, in your presentation this morning, or this noon, Heidi, you mentioned the uh, ratio between hot record highs and record lows. And you showed them from 1950 on. And I don't know if the figures are available. I would have gone before, 1930s. All the records, that, or since all the records, many of the temperature record highs that were set in 2012 broke records from the 1930s. And so I think it's extremely important that we present you know, the best information possible and not try to anyway, and I'm not accusing you of this by any means, but try to make the figures or facts, records, or whatever we want to use to justify our position. Um, I'm a little frustrated right now because we're going through a kind of a record cold spring. We don't hear much about that on the news. Last year all we could hear about was the record highs. We got to tell both sides of the story and uh, we want credibility and I, you know, the Nebraska Draft Mitigation Center, they provide a tremendous service here to the state of Nebraska and across the whole country and we got to make sure, you know, this kind of information is credible. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, any any responses or? Well, again, this is, and I think this is where one of the things that I really try to do is to stress the importance of natural climate variability. The fact that that we have had tremendous change. In fact. When you look at the tree ring records for drought, we can find periods in the 12 and 1300s where we had mega droughts, where, right, where droughts lasted upwards of, of 20 and 30 years. So I'd say that for me, I, my goal is never to suggest that there is not incredible strength in our natural climate variability. It's just to showcase the fact that now we have natural climate variability, which we already know can be incredibly detrimental, but that's now being overlain by this additional human fingerprint, if you will. So we've seen worse droughts in the past, um, but it's really just to say that we have forecast information about where we're headed in the future by virtue of the additional forcing, if you will, that's on the atmosphere, and that that information is incredibly important to us. And then with respect to the record highs and record lows, that was straight from the, public, the published data. So when they looked at the data sets, they're looking for robust long-term statistics, and they didn't have enough coverage in early years, and that's why that time series started in the 50s. But the finding is indeed robust in the sense that we are moving in a direction of more record highs versus record lows. But again, I'm the one who absolutely agrees. Natural climate variability is really, really important, and we need 
you know, because I, I feel like that's one of the mistakes that as scientists we've made is that we kind of skipped skipped ahead to the end of the century when it's when you know the projections are it will be very warm without giving the additional information about the kinds of variability that we'll see because that that's really important too because yeah you get a cold spring and you know the takeaway is wait what where did this come from right and 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 that's just that's the last place you want to be in as a scientist because you completely lose your credibility next question and maybe this is going to be our, our last question i think because we're getting in on two I'm not sure this will be a question so much as a, a, a plea for a little counseling support here. Um, in 1976, I worked on the Global Climate Food Modeling Project at the University of Wisconsin with Reed Bryson. And at that point, we talked about things of climate change, but really the watchword was the Sahelian effect. I mean, it was what we were witnessing when high pressure cells don't come on land, don't bring the rains. And I pursued a career in biology at that point, and then found that the biologists weren't very good at playing well in the sandbox with people who thought about human beings. And that led me to uh, demography, population studies, sociology. And I guess w what I want to say is that I really think that the approach that the Drought Mitigation Center takes and that you take with uh, fire watch uh, kinds of mapping and prediction and early awareness are a really, really important counterbalance to the discussion of climate change. Climate change is be beyond individual people's ability to fully grasp for all the reasons we've been talking about. But it's also problematic because even if we convinced everyone in the United States. We still have two out of five people on the planet Earth residing in two countries, both of which are seeking an increase in standard of livings that is going to continue to drive carbon dioxide accumulation in the atmosphere. And so there's a side of me that gets very almost cynical, if not just a bit depressed when I think about this. And it does seem that our earlier questioner raising the issue of more sort of tactical kinds of approaches and what you do at the Drought Mitigation Center, what you do with building communication and trust is a really important counter lever to that. What I don't know and what I kind of want to ask is how do we begin to really extend that to other parts of the world, Kyoto Treaty aside, those parts of the world that are major population players, major economic developers, knowing that as soon as economics gets into the picture, cap and trade, climate change, fall right off the table of discussion, even in a place like the United States. So I don't know if I'm clear, but that's what I'm wondering. Any takers? It's a big, it's a big question. You know, it's, it's a very significant question. And I think it can be completely overwhelming, too, when you try to think about the question as a whole. And I guess what I've come to realize is that there's so many there's so many groups working on different aspects of this challenge, and it's almost like, you know, if you can if you can work on your own backyard, and if you can make your farming practices as efficient as possible, if you can increase your own resilience so that you're not vulnerable to extremes, like it, I think we can all sort of look to do work in our own backyards, and and then continue to connect the work, because it can feel completely overwhelming otherwise. Greg, it, it looked like you might want to say something. I don't know. Okay. No. No pressure. No pressure. Yeah. So, so that's a that's a uh, a very very tough issue, and I, I don't really think much about global climate policy. I probably could spend a lot of time learning more about that, but it seems seems that um, at least. Uh, we could somehow incentivize those countries to put more investment in renewable energy, for example. It's a, a naive notion, but it seems like, you know, that, that would, in the, if we do that in the short term, it'll save us, I suspect, a lot in the long term in terms of Hurricane Sandy kinds of disasters or 
hotter drought kind of disasters. Not to end on a depressing note, but look, there's, you know, be hopeful, don't, don't give up. And, you know, in the meantime, there's so much good work to be done. You know, I, I, I took a lot away from the discussion this morning around resilience and the fact that we need to study it like a science and we need to really make it clear, you know, those areas that can push us into places where we just don't want to go. Uh, you know, whether it's climate change or other reasons, you know, policy becomes a huge part of this discussion. Look, that's our cue. So, Thanks, guys, for coming out. I, I hope that there were some useful takeaways here, and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. And thanks to our wonderful panel.